This is episode 252 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Organ on a Chip, with Dr. Bas Treach. Hey, everybody. We are Drs. Daylon and Arun, back with the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the podcast, rate us and leave a review, please. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Bas Treach from Mimetas on the podcast to talk about his research on organs on chips for disease modeling and drug discovery. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, we've actually got some pretty exciting news for you. The Stem Cell Podcast will once again be coming to New York City. Join us at the Alexandria Center for Life Science on October 26th for a live recording of the Stem Cell Podcast, where we'll be discussing Blue Rock Therapeutics Phase 1 clinical trial for a stem cell-derived investigational cell therapy for treating patients with Parkinson's disease. Hear from those involved in the clinical trial about the journey of bringing a cell therapy from the bench to the clinic and the challenges along the way. You can register for the show at www.stemcellpodcast.com slash bluerock-live-show. And we definitely cannot wait to be back in New York chatting with folks live about the amazing developments over there at Blue Rock. And it's been fun discussing the results of some of their clinical trials. But moving to the roundup, we'll talk about something neurodevelopmental, neurodisease related. This is a paper coming from our friend, Sergio Pasca, who's been on the show a few times. And we know what Sergio's Live is all about. They're really focusing on these assembloids, these aggregations of multiple organoids for studying neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism. So this is a nature paper. First author here is Shangling Meng, uh, titled Assembloid CRISPR Screens Reveal Impact of Disease Genes in Human Neurodevelopment. And like I said, they're going to be using these cortical assembloids to their maximum potential here. And the the scope and the scale of this study is astounding. I mean, I just want to be a fly in the wall for some of these Pasca lab meetings just to understand, you know, how long it took to do some of these screens. I mean, just the numbers here in this paper are pretty incredible. So, you know, the assembly of the cortical circuits during development, human human development, in mammalian development, involves the generation and migration of different neuronal populations, you know, inner neurons, for example, from different parts of the brain, uh, parts of the brain, including the the ventral side and the dorsal side of the foreplane. And it's been pretty tough to study this process of interneuron migration in the brain because you know you need good model systems to do that um you know they're the the stages of late gestation and early postnatal human development you know these are somewhat inaccessible of course this is changing a bit thanks to many of the new early embryo models that we're starting to develop but um, they're really using their their cortical organoids and their assembloids here to address this issue and to understand this issue of interneuron migration during early human development and autism in particular, autism spectrum disorder and other neurodevelopmental disorders have actually been associated with the abnormal migration of these interneurons during cortical development. Um, but which of these neurodevelopmental 
genes, the, there's been a number of neurodevelopmental associated genes that have been identified in many studies over the last few years, but being able to interrogate the actual function of these neurodevelopmental genes in the context of interneuron migration, that's been really tough to do. So not just looking at migration, but also the generation of the interneurons. Like we really want to be able to, to better dissect the mechanisms of how these genes actually influence these migration and differentiation phenotypes. So, of course, the Pasco Lab, as I said a million times now, has developed this platform for studying human interneuron migration using these uh, different forebrain and cortical assembloids, right? And what they're doing here in this paper is really taking this assembloid and migration and interneuron migration work to the next level. So what they did is they integrated the assembloids with a massive, massive CRISPR screen to actually investigate the involvement of 425 candidate neurodevelopmental disease genes in the in the context of human interneuron uh, development and migration. So the first screen was actually looking at interneuron generation and actually honed it down from those 425 to 13 even more specific candidate genes, including CSDE1 and one gene which is pretty ubiquitous in my opinion. This is a TGF beta, TGF beta superfamily member, um, downstream regulator SMAD4. Okay, so these are two um, of the 13 candidate genes that they identified, which had a role in interneuron generation. And then next, they did a, a, a interneuron migration screen, and <laughs> this is where the numbers get crazy. More than a thousand forebrain assembloids that actually identified 33 other candidate genes, including cytoskeleton-related genes and ER, endoplasmic reticulum-related gene, uh, LMPK. They found through some really cool imaging that, um, and this is where they started dissecting the mechanism a little bit more after doing that initial screen, they found that during interneuron migration, the, inter inter uh, the endoplasmic reticulum is displaced along the leading neuronal branch, is what they call it, before the actual nuclear separation and translocation, okay? And when you delete this LNPK gene that they identified through their screen, it interferes with this endoplasmic reticulum displacement and actually ultimately results in that abnormal migration phenotype, which maybe is influencing some of the phenotypes that you see in, in autism spectrum disorder. Of course, that disconnect is something I've alluded to before. I think even on our most recent episode, you know, connecting a specific um, mechanism of interneuron migration to a downstream autism phenotype is is tricky and certainly Sergius Pasca's uh, Dr. Pasca's lab is thinking about this but you know these are just some results that are highlighting the power of the system to perhaps dissect those mechanisms a little bit better um you know the the power of the system the combination of the assembloids with the crispr massive massive crispr screen to actually systematically map some of these neurodevelopmental disorder genes and not just do a massive screen but actually fine-tune the analysis to individual genes, just as is LNPK, to actually find that perhaps there is an endoplasmic reticulum-related phenotype, which is ultimately giving rise to that, um, that interneuron migration phenotype, right? So a lot of cool technologies here, um, just a reflection on the, the power of CRISPR screens to actually identify some of these really cool candidate genes and also the power of Sergio Pasca's lab in enabling the, the development of these really cool assemblies for studying, you know, interneuron migration and ultimately getting a better understanding of the mechanisms of something as complex 
as autism spectrum disorder. Yeah, that's it, man. The, the complexity and and the phenotype, right? You, you you were talking about the genotype phenotype link, how it's tricky. And I, I've said it before, I would have never predicted, I would have thought it'd be the last stone to turn that we'd be able to link the, you know, cell biology, molecular biology to neurodevelopment and behavior. So I am blown away by any study that's understanding and elucidating anything about the brain. So hats off uh, there. But also, I just love this job and I love science. You know, just the last episode, as you just alluded to there, we're covering a story again in this field that I would have not predicted to be so productive. In this case, uh, a couple a couple weeks ago, an episode ago, we were talking about the story from Jurgen Noblick and, and Barbara Trutlin, where they were using single cell uh, analysis of, of organoids to uh, unravel some of the mechanisms of, of, of gene contribution and uh, the most prominent genes that have been linked to autism spectrum disorder and trying to unpack the biology there. And that was like a single cell thing. And here we are on the other side of it, looking more meta at the assembloid. And I, I think that's that's the beauty of uh, this field right now is just two weeks apart. You have two completely different ways of attacking the problem that are you know related uh, using a lot of the same tools, but are applying completely different innovative approaches to get at an answer and you need to do it here. I mean, the scope of this study is tremendous. I don't know you need to go this deep, but of course, Dr. Paskey, you know him, he's unleashed now with these assembloids, but um, you know, it's important to make these links because something as mundane as SMAD4, for example, that you mentioned, you know, that's, that's the co-SMAD. That's the one that's shared between the two branches, uh, you know, BMP and TGF-beta active and signaling of, of signaling. So like pretty mundane, right? And ubiquitous. Um, and so, yeah, what what the hell is this COSMAD perturbation uh, that presumably is affecting both pathways? How is that uh, influencing the phenotype? These are the answers we need. And it's complex, as you, as you ended there by saying so many different factors in order to get at the answer and understand the, the course of disease and potentially intercede either either during the, the the acquisition of pathology or post, you got to understand how, how the machine goes wrong, right? You need that black box, so to speak. And here's another black box uh, that's allowing us to, to peer into this impenetrable system. So hats off, Serge, you did it again. Yeah, we'll have to have Dr. Pasca back on the show at some point. I forget how many times he's actually been on here, at least two or three times already, but just a reflection of just how you know proliferate prolific his lab has been in this particular area. I think this um this assembloid system is perfectly positioned to to complement the studies from Dr. Noblick, as you had alluded to, because this, these assembloids are really perfect for looking at cell-cell interactions and in particular cell migration phenotypes. I mean, you can have different types of assembloids. Remember, the Pasca lab has had some really wild assembloids. I mean, do you remember that cortical muscle assembloid where you stimulated the cortex and you got a twitch response in the muscle? That was still one of my favorite papers to cover. And that was like, I don't even know, two years ago or something like that. So just just a reflection of the, you know, the the complexity of these technologies, but also how um how manipulable they can be, how interchangeable the different organoids and different assembloids can be to help understand different disease mechanisms and disease phenotypes. For sure. For sure. Infinite permutation, seemingly, and a lot of questions to answer. Um, big questions surrounding the heart, 
you know, major pivot, tried to segue, forgive me. It was pretty clumsy, but here we are. Uh, talking about the heart, drinking your milkshake a little bit here, Aruna, as I like to do. Um, you know, we lament on on the show a lot, uh, the, the lack of cardiac regenerative capacity in mammals. Um, but as impractical as it may be for adults uh, with cardiac disease, the neonatal heart actually has market potential for cardiomyocyte regeneration, uh, as was first noted in this pivotal seminal study by Pirello et al. and Hasham Sadek's group uh, about a dozen years ago now. Uh, since then, a lot of groups have tried to unravel the biology behind this neonatal cardiac regenerative capacity. Uh, and one piece of the puzzle uh, seems to be metabolism, right? So, you know, uh, this neonatal regenerative capacity is lost shortly after birth um, when most cardiomyocytes withdraw from the cell cycle and switch to this phase of uh, hypertrophic growth, right? Um, and this coincides with a switch or a shift uh, in energy metabolism from glycolytic to oxidative metabolism. I had no idea about this. People don't talk about this enough, but it's known uh, that this shift in energy metabolism takes place. And because of that high metabolic activity that you'll see in cardiomyocytes and the associated oxidative damage to DNA, it creates this non-permissive environment for cardi cardiomyocyte cell division, right? So teleologically speaking, there's the reason why you don't have cardiomyocytes proliferating, the reason why you don't get tumors in the heart. It's just not an amenable uh, system for cell proliferation with all that oxidative damage. Um, but the point there is that the metabolism and maturation of cardiomyocytes are very uh, tightly intertwined. Right. And, and it's been shown that if you enforce an anaerobic form of metabolism, you can promote cardiomyocyte cell proliferation. Uh, but in spite of that observation being made by many groups, the mechanisms that link this metabolic switch uh, to the limited proliferation of adult cardiomyocytes not really understood uh, at all. Right. So enter uh, Zhui Junyuan and Thomas Braun, who are at the Max Planck Institute for Heart and Lung Research, also associated with Instituto de Investigación en Biomedicina de Buenos Aires, uh, this, this partner institute of Max Planck that's in Buenos Aires. Um, they uh, looked into this link between uh, metabolism and cardiomyocyte proliferation, maturation. Not only that, they hacked it, right? Uh, and you know where this story ends, but I'll take you along that path. Uh, they started with RNA-seq, looking at the first week when these cardiomyocytes un undergo this shift. And what they saw was that there was a uh, a reduction um, in uh, genes that were related to glycolysis and cell cycle progression, as you would expect, the cell cycle progression, maybe not the glycolysis. And you get an increase in genes related to fatty acid oxidation uh, and the Krebs cycle, right? So observing that link and with the literature there about enforcing anaerobic, anaerobic metabolism, they delved into those effectors there and ultimately uh, did this kind of knockout inhibition strategy where they took out uh, fatty acid oxidation uh, disabled it in cardiomyocytes and sh showed that those cells were increasingly resistant to hypoxia and were able to stimulate proliferation. And most importantly, uh, those hearts were able to regenerate after this ischemic reperfusion injury. Uh, then they showed that this uh, this phenotype was associated with 
accumulation of this alpha ketoglutarate uh, in these mutant mice that they generated. Um, and that uh, accumulation of alpha, alpha ketoglutarate uh, led to activation of this lysine demethylase, KDM5, and that demethylated uh, a bunch of H3K4 methyl domains in uh, genes, trimethyl uh, domains in genes that drove maturation. Uh, and that activation there led to lowering of the those target genes transcription levels, shifting the cardiomyocytes to a less mature state and enabling this proliferative phenotype. So, I mean, a lot of links in the chain there, which is why this is a, a nature paper, paper. And I think outside of the box kind of thinking in terms of all of the cell therapies we talk about and, and how they've, I, I wouldn't say stalled, but it's been a longer road than, than we hoped. I love this idea of hacking uh, the system and here endowing it with this neonatal phenotype in a way that's not so kind of, I, I don't know, it's clearly an intervention here. They had to knock out a gene to get there, but because it's linked to metabolism here, I think that there may be a hack where you can perturb the metabolism result, uh, re resulting in a shift that can be either local or transient or something that in the acute phase following heart attack, you can get instead of this proliferation of the myofibroblast and scar that you could get a more regenerative phenotype. So I, I think maybe this is something that has legs, uh, maybe a lot more than the first thing I would think of cell therapy. So I don't know, Arun, you love the heart. It's your business. What do you think about this? I love this paper. And uh, as the kids would say, I'm jelly that you picked this paper and that I didn't pick it. I mean, this is this is part of the inspiration, you know, for me getting into this field in, in stem cell biology and regenerative medicine, because um, I mean, I've told this story before. I was inspired by Dr. Ken Poss's work as an undergrad at Duke. You know, he's working in heart regeneration and studying how zebrafish have this incredible regenerative capacity in their their adult hearts, which is lost for all intents and purposes in the adult mammalian heart. And this is turning that, you know, concept on its head in some ways to to show that perhaps you can induce a highly regenerative proliferative phenotype in adult mammalian hearts simply by regulating metabolism. And we know that metabolism is is critically important in cardiomyocyte development, even in the in vitro stuff that I do. One trick that we do in culture to actually purify cardiomyocytes is to take away uh, glucose in the cell culture media that the, the cells are growing in because we know that cardiomyocytes have a propensity to grow in, in, in fatty acid supplemented media. And that's how we purify the cells. We wipe out everything else that, you know, um, that cannot metabolize fatty acids as well. And we have a pure population of cardiomyocytes, right? That's on the in vitro side. This is of course on the, the in vivo side. And you, you allude to, you know, why this study reached the caliber that it did. And part of it is to get the readers to think about that translational potential. You know, they don't, I don't think they ever mention that translational potential in this paper, but of course, that's ultimately what we're thinking about is how do we restore cardiac regeneration in in adult human hearts in, in an analogous fashion to what they're showing here. And you also alluded to how there's so many links in the chain here. And perhaps the, the key link to regulate for adult human mammalian heart regeneration is that alpha ketoglutarate. Perhaps you can stimulate or exogenously supplement alpha ketoglutarate 
somehow in the adult human heart after a myocardial infarction, and perhaps it'll restore some sort of you know, immature proliferative phenotype in that way. I don't know, just a hypothesis, but uh, this is an amazing study, and it has caught a lot of attention in the cardiac developmental field and the regeneration field on the Twitters, as they say. Um, I'm super, super excited about this work, and I'm jealous that you got to cover it. <laughs> My bad, Arun, but you know it had to be covered, and you, you let it slide, so I picked it up. Um, and yeah, just reiterating what you're thinking. For me, it, it was uh, an inspiration in the modern day, even just because it's a, it's a different way of thinking about the problem. And I think it's kind of uh, overlaid with this way we've reset the dogmas about terminal differentiation and reprogramming. Uh, it gets you to think about heart in a different way you know instead of the idea of uh, uh cells in the heart that lose their proliferative capacity i would say that this is that they gain a mature phenotype they are endowed with a mature phenotype that is irreconcilable with that continued proliferation for whatever reason organismally or evolutionarily but that is a phenotype that the same way that's endowed it's a it's something that's been gained over, over evolution right we've 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 lost the ability to have a regenerative heart, but uh, perhaps that's something that we can can re regain by shedding that mature phenotype. So uh, the plasticity of every cell, I think, is is the key here. Um, and uh, if we can hack it, then we can heal it. Yeah, the the one thing I wonder is, and I've I've been thinking about this for a while. It's just, it's why, right? Why don't we have that regenerative capacity in adult mammalian hearts, and something like a zebrafish or a salamander or a newt does? Like, what's the evolutionary is, is sometimes driven by by need and necessity, right? What necessitated the adult mammalian heart to lose that amazing regenerative capacity? I don't know, just. This will keep me keeps me up at night. <laughs> Anyways, moving on to uh, another cardiac centric paper. This is much more translationally oriented and in the realm of iPSCs and the, their applications for for cell therapy. Um, this is a work coming out of Patrick Shea's lab, but also some very famous cardiac biologists and stem cell biologists and differentiation gurus such as Tim Camp at Wisconsin are, are on this paper. This is a circulation paper, again, very translationally oriented, looking at that uh, decade-long question, perhaps even longer than decade-long question of how can we adequately use stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes and stem cell-derived cardiovascular cells for regenerating the infarcted heart in mice and non-human primates, right? So this is taking the study that you you alluded to and that you covered uh, to the next level and actually thinking about, okay, how can we actually use cell therapy for regenerative capacity? And this is not the first time this has been covered. Of course, folks uh, around the world are working on this problem. What's the right way to use iPSCs for cardiac regenerative therapy? Chuck Murray has been on the show and has talked about his work in this area in terms of genetically modifying cardiomyocytes and iPS stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes so that they don't have arrhythmogenic capacity. That's the big limitation in the cardiac cell therapy field for iPS-derived cardiomyocytes and uh, cardiovascular cells is the cells that you're introducing back into the heart after a myocardial infarction, they don't properly electrophysiologically integrate with the host myocardium, which is, of course, a massive issue because arrhythmias are lethal, as we know. So going into this study, this is, again, a circulation study. Circulation is the 
the the most prominent journal in cardiac biology and cardiovascular research. Um, uh, what 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 did they do different here to actually address this problem and you know address this issue of cardiac cell therapy and figure out ways to improve engraftment and perhaps arrhythmogenicity in that IPS derived cell therapy? Well, I'll walk you through the papers. So, I mean, they they did what you expect. They generated IPS derived cardiomyocytes and importantly. IPS-derived endothelial cells. And we, we've talked about, and you're an endothelial cell expert yourself, you know that these ECs are immature, they're imperfect. I see you smiling over there across the screen. Uh, that was their trick that they used here to actually improve the maturation of the cardiomyocytes when they you know, co-transplanted them into the uh, the mouse hearts and also the, the non-human primate hearts after myocardial infarction. And they showed that in the presence of these endothelial cells, these cardiomyocytes become more mature. Um, they uh, function better in vitro and in vivo. It's not something super groundbreaking. We kind of knew this in the presence of a co-culture system. The cardiomyocytes do become more mature. I mean, I've even showed this in vitro with some of the cardiac spheroid systems that we're developing in our lab. Um, but uh, importantly, what they, they also showed is in the mouse model, when they co-transplanted the cardiomyocytes, IPS-derived cardiomyocytes with the ECs, it improved vascularization in the graph. So kind of maybe what you would expect, right? It improved the maturity of the cardiomyocytes in the infarct area, improved the cardiac function of the myocardial infarction, but but the big issue still remains, the arrhythmias. And they were not able to alleviate those arrhythmias, at least from what I saw in this paper. They still had the ventricular tachycardia, which is, again, a major issue with all these cell therapies. Um, Sure, improving their functionality, improving their vascularization is important, but in my mind, that's still something that needs to be tackled. And I, I think this is great. This is an approach to perhaps integrate with some of those uh, less arrhythmogenic approaches as well. But this paper alone, I don't think is going to ultimately solve that problem of IPS-derived cardiomyocyte cell therapy. I think it's going to take a lot of groups from around the world working in this particular area. But hey, we're pushing it, we're pushing it forward. Yeah, for me, it's banging that they went into the primate. I'll read any paper that does like a well-designed study and transplanting directly in the heart in a in a, a ischemia model or a infarct model. Awesome. I'll read that. Uh, but I will agree that the approach is, I would say, more uh, general, basic in terms of it's we we've been thinking about that and trying it before. I mean, I'm not I'm not throwing shade here, but as an endothelial biologist as as you said i gotta i gotta wear the hat here and just ask a couple of questions about those endothelial cells in terms of i've said this a million times you know what i'm gonna say which is people talk about endothelial cells it's like me being like yeah it's a it's a neural cell um but there's a lot of different cell types in the brain and is that are classified as neural um and there's a lot of diversity amongst endothelial cells so yeah i'm not surprised one that endothelial co-culture provide a benefit because endothelial cells shoot out a bunch of trophic factors and growth factors that are can be generally uh, augment cell growth. So not surprising. Um, I'm not surprised that it improved va vascularity, you know, endothelial performing that generic function as, as a conduit there, the plumbing. Um, but uh, I'm also not surprised that it did nothing for the arrhythmogenicity, if I said that right, uh, because I don't know I, I don't know why I would intuitively 
And if I had to say there was one thing that I would I would like to see is that not for nothing, but some groups, myself included, have have kind of put their finger on some of the endothelial diversity, showing some subpopulations, for example, in my case, that have a cardiac phenotype or are derived from a cardiac uh, multi multipotent progenitor that can give rise to endothelial cells. I would have liked to see uh, what those endothelial cells looked like um, in order to maybe try and unpack what what mechanistically the contribution of the endothelium is to in, in, in providing the benefit. But sure, I mean, I think this is more uh, of a circulate and applied, you know, surgical experimental study with the endpoint being more the resolution of scar, not, not so much focus on how, but on, on what. So I, I'm still very interested just to see that there was a positive result. I think now the consensus ought to be that in co-injection or introduction of a vascular cell can only be beneficial, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I think a lot of questions. I mean, circulation is definitely a translationally slash clinically oriented journal, as you know. Circulation research is the, the sister journal of circulation, and that's, I guess, the more pure basic science of the circulation family journals. Um, but yeah, I mean, anytime you can show in a large animal model, non-human primate model, that you're getting a a beneficial effect functionally, that's that's really important. And the next step is to dive deeper into the mechanism as to how this actually happened. And I think one thing that you're alluding to is sometimes in the IPS field, we generate an endothelial cell that and say, oh, it's CD31 positive, CD144 positive. All right, we're good to go. You know, let's just use it for our studies without diving deeper into what's the subtype, what's the the specific, you know, cardiac subtype, venous arterial, you know, there's a lot of questions that you have to answer about what is the exact phenotype of these endothelial cells. And the good news is we have the data sets to be able to interrogate that now with all the single cell data sets. We've even covered some of those papers here on the show, the massive EC single cell data sets that can help you unravel the mystery of what is this generic endothelial cell? What is it exactly? Dalon, tell me. I, I mean, I, that's the thing, Arun. I couldn't tell you because you could never put your finger on it. That's the other thing. It may be an endothelial cell when you isolate it, but two days later, it's something else. Endothelial mesenchymal transition is real, people. So uh, the dynamics of these populations also important thing to consider. But let's stop throwing stones because I love endothelial cells. They are key. My favorite cell in the body, maybe, next to the blood, which uh, obviously is the best cell. Um, and vascularization is key and critical to any kind of scale organ, right? We're not talking about 2D culture here. Um, and that's what I'm about to tell you about, a story from Science Translational Medicine that, again, underscores uh, the key function and contribution of vascularization in any tissue graft. And, and this really, I think, we, we got to lay at the feet of a, a, ma a major trail, trailblazer innovator in the field of tissue engineering, Anthony Etala, who who has been on the program, if any of you guys are interested, episode 198, it was a great one. Um, and he who's trying to print, uh, quote unquote, relatively simple organ structures like bladders, for example, that are capable of being implanted in people uh, and making great progress at that actually has his work in trials. Um, so very exciting, but very ambitious. Uh, and here's a story that builds on uh, your story a little bit. And again, as I said, underscoring the critical role for vascular cells and regenerative therapies. Uh, in this case, we're talking about 
tracheal stenosis, you know, not a real headline grabber in terms of unmet need, but it's real. Uh, it follows from tumors or trauma injury or congenital diseases even can lead to this tracheal stenosis, which affects airway function, of course. And the, the only treatment that's really effective or the most effective is, is tracheal resection with end-to-end -end anastomosis. So yeah, exactly what it sounds like. You pretty much just put another tube in there, replace it like some piping. Um, but as you might imagine from a, a surgical treatment like that often results in life-threatening complications. For example, fistula tracheal rupture. Um, tissue engineering, obviously great candidate here uh, for reconstructing the trachea. It's a relatively simple tubular organ. Uh, it's comprised of a bunch of cart cartilage rings um, that provide that mechanical support and then just some some other tissue that's vascularized and important and all that. But the real key is that those those rings that provide the the support that can sustain you know all the movements of the neck, not just the the tensile influence of breathing and eating. And well, I guess you don't eat through the trachea, but it's flexes. All right, people, you need to have some mechanics in there. Um, and in the past, uh, groups have used engineered cartilage rings that you stack to form a, a tubular structure. Uh, and that has been shown it gets vascularized by the native endothelial cells. And um, it can result in a structure with in, in improved flexibility and the, the tissue is more viable because of that vascularization. But there's a lot, a lot of things that need to be done in order for this to be ready for prime time. This is really early experiments just aren't going to cut it. They're not really practical. Uh, these rings, they got to have uh, better mechanical strength is one thing, similar to the native cartilage. Um, also, you got to uh, improve and increase the angiogenesis in the space between those cartilaginous rings that were stacked before in the past. You would get uh, loss of the, the vascularity there um, and then death of the these chondrocytes that had invaded and you get fibrosis and proliferation. Also, there's you need to create this favorable immune microenvironment to avoid this inflammatory influence and, and result in fibrosis and necrosis, et cetera, right? So with all those needs being in place, this group comprised of three principal investigators who are Yunlong She, Yong He, and Chang Chen, who are from Tongji University and uh, Zhejiang University, which are in Shanghai and Hangzhou, respectively. Uh, this group and their many uh, lab members um, they ventured on this bioengineered trachea project where they uh, 3D printed these fibers of polysigma caprolactone, we're calling that PCL, and they embedded them with rabbit chondrocytes, which then spit out a bunch of ECM, extracellular matrix, secreted it onto the PCL fibers, uh, and that formed this kind of what they call a concrete rebar structure. But it, it pretty much just embedded all these fibers with the extracellular matrix to create a, a sheet, um, which had a, a similar structure to native car cartilage. Um, and then they added just the plain PCL uh, mixed with hydrogel in a separate ring and alternated those. So what they called these um, bioengineered cartilage rings and then the, just the plain fiber rings in alternates. And then they put those onto a silicone tube, right? And this is where it gets exciting. The way they apply this is they 
uh, implant this heterotopically, so like next to the trachea in a in a rabbit for four weeks, and by transplanting it there and letting it simmer, so to speak, the the cartilaginous elements there and rings and the silicone becomes imbued with endothelia and other cells becomes vascularized, right? Then they take it out and they resect the the actual trachea, the native trachea that was that was it was sitting next to all that time. And then they they replace it with this engineered trachea that's been growing for four weeks uh, by end-to-end anastomosis. Uh, and then they let that go for eight weeks uh, as their end point. And the amazing results here to me was that the respiratory... So first of all, five out of the six of these rabbits survived. The one who died, uh, died from a post-op uh, hemorrhage in the trachea. So acute complication of the surgery, I would say, not necessarily a failure of the graft. All the other ones survived and had normal respir respiratory rate that was similar to the preoperative levels. So like to me, this is one of those exciting, ready for prime time therapies where you use the body as an incubator. I mean, I love this idea of, of adult, like truly adult stem cell based therapy that is so future tech. You know, you grow the organ next to the organ, then you replace the organ. This is something as somebody who has like, you know, a tumor that's growing or congenital condition or whatever thing that is leading to decreased function of their trachea, you know, four weeks, uh, they implant this thing and then replace it and they're good to go at least for eight weeks after. I mean, what more can you ask for? But presumably for many years after is what I would think if they're ironclad after eight weeks. So I think this is a really exciting uh, moment for anyone who cares about engineering, like this is a, a proof of, I think, an idea that Atal introduced a long time ago, which was, I think, ambitious in its time, but seemed simple. It was like, oh, the bladder is just a bag or, you know, the, the trachea or whatever, it's just a tube. It's more complicated than that. But I, I think we're, we're kind of approaching the horizon there in terms of realizing um, that that endpoint of replacing a diseased organ with a completely bioengineered surrogate. So very exciting. Really cool stuff. And I like uh, how you alluded to Dr. Atala. I mean, some of his work was really foundational in this field. I mean, this is somewhat of a low-hanging fruit when it comes to the trachea and the bladder because, you know, in comparison to say, and I'm biased, yeah, sure, it's comparison to the heart. They're simplified, somewhat simplified. Some would say the heart is simplified. It's one of the most simple organs out there, just a, just a pump, right? But maybe the trachea is just a, it's just a tube. And this is going to be a bad joke. Remember early days of the internet, there was a, a U.S. congressperson that just called the internet a series of tubes. I don't know if you remember that. What is the body if not just a series of tubes, right, Dalon? And the trachea is just one of those tubes. And I think this is a really cool, you know, translationally oriented study, and that's why it's in science translational medicine, hint, hint. Certainly some limitations to, to build on, and one is something that you're alluding to and getting it ready for prime time, you got to demonstrate the efficacy of this process and the efficacy of this transplantation and survival in a larger animal model, right? You got to go towards goats, you got to go towards pigs, and inevitably they're going to be doing that. Um, another thing that they alluded to here was in the bioengineered trachea-like structure, the inner wall of that trachea is directly exposed to air, which increased the risk of infection. That makes a lot of sense, right? And one thing they hypothesize is that if the epithelial cells can migrate from the native 
rabbit trachea into that new trachea, then that could reduce the incidence of infection. I think that is extremely important before you move this towards clinical trans transplantation and translation. But I'm glad they're they're starting to think about that. So it'll be cool to see where this area of study goes in the next five to ten years. Yeah, I mean the limitations notwithstanding, it's it's I think it's an exciting application for I wouldn't say a field that people have given up on, but I think most people had had moved on from this idea of even simple organs uh, being simple to bioreproduce. Um, and yeah, as you said, they're not even there here, but they've taken a step in the right direction, I think, with the vascular cells showing vascularization and and the integration with the body and a, a kind of like equilibration with the, the body's own cells. I like that interim period of growing side by side with the native organ. Um, although, as you said, I think the immune interface is going to be really key. And that's where even in a small animal model, I would like to look at these rabbits a year or two out or, or challenged with, you know, certain, I don't know, I, I want to say get them smoking or anything, but in a more real life uh, environment, <laughs> just see how these, these bioengineered trachea do as they would in humans. Because yeah, that would be the question I ask. If there's existing therapies, even though there are risks, like who's going to be the first patient that's going to just go out there and be like, okay, let's try the bio and let's roll the dice and see how long uh, this thing will last. Because if it fails, I don't know where you go from there. So yeah, maybe not ready for prime time, but I think a really bright light for Atella and his ilk, because, uh, you know, the body, you know, maybe a series of tubes and pumps, but, you know, uh, I think maybe we thought it was more akin to a calculator when it's more like, uh, you know, a MacBook Pro, a little bit more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. Where anyway, are you going with that, Dale? I don't know. I'm, I'm getting mixed up in my analogies. It must be the organ on a chip influence. I, I just don't even know what's real anymore, my friend. But uh, maybe uh, Boss can sort that out for us in a few minutes. Before we get there, I got a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies, who'd like to introduce you to their one-step resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. Learn about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. Visit www.stemcell.com slash discover dash organoids. All right, everybody. Today on the show, we have a special guest from the industry side of things, Dr. Boss Treach, who is a CTO and co-founder at Mimitas, a company working to contribute to groundbreaking therapies with their screenable, physiologically relevant 3D human disease models. Boss, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all ours. So let's just jump in. You founded this company, Mimetas, with Paul Vulto and Jos Jor a decade ago and have been steadily developing the tech since. What is the core technology that the company was built around and how has it been applied? Yeah, at Mimetas, we're really focusing on uh, offering the best human-relevant tissue models to researchers to help speed up their uh, their research towards new drugs, 
and uh, to help give them all the tools to understand disease processes to the best of their abilities. And um, this is based on the, the conception that if you're building a model that's either not human, uh, that is either not 3D, or that is consisting of only of too small of a subset of the cells that are relevant uh, to capture a certain mechanism of disease or a mechanism of healthy uh, tissue function for that matter, you are basically running down the wrong path. So there's of course the conventional way of thinking that it's fine to start your drug research by going uh, huge numbers of compounds, testing them on a very simple assay and that way sort of whittling down the numbers a little bit and that that will sort of run you down a funnel over time, getting you down to the more promising drugs. Our way of thinking about it is that actually it's not so much of a funnel, more as a, a, a big city or a maze that you need to find the right way through. And if you start off with the wrong type of models, you're going down towards the wrong end of the uh, of this maze. And it's actually not so easy to course correct down the line. So what we've developed is the organoplate technology, the technology that allows us to culture different cells uh, supported by ECM, typically collagen, fibrinogen, matrogel, any of the like, where we can uh, bring different cells in contact with each other to provide them with the right microenvironments. And importantly also, where we can vascularize and perfuse these tissues uh, and also add circulating cells, immune cells, tumor cells, uh, what, uh, whatever is relevant for your specific research question. And in that way, we build um, uh, miniature livers, miniature kidneys, uh, micro, uh, microphysiological systems. And how we, so I think that's how we differentiate ourselves from conventional tissue culture methodologies. If you then zoom into the area of, of organoid chip technologies, our focus is really to maintain scalability. So this system that I was talking uh, about, it looks like a 384 well plate. It functions and it handles like a 384 well plate. All the microfluidics is embedded in the bottom of it. It images like a 384 well plate. The bottom is simply, uh, is effectively a cover glass which means that we culture between 40 and 96 uh, tissues on, an, on a tighter plate, and you can use them with liquid handling robots, with high throughput screening, uh, high throughput imaging systems, and they are really made to be implemented in high throughput screens. So we try to combine best-in-class biology with full-on scalability, combine that with our, our own latest developments on data science, on image analysis, to uh, to really make a dent in uh, in the most challenging research questions that we are facing today. Yeah, it's a really powerful technology, and I'm glad you highlighted the scalability um, because I actually want to talk about that a little bit more. I mean, full disclosure, I've been dabbling in these organ chip systems for a few years now. I've been developing some hard-on-chip systems for studying drug cardiotoxicity. And I'm I'm really impressed by that idea of scalability that you just highlighted with your particular technology. It's something that's not always there for these organ chip systems. I mean, oftentimes these organ chip systems and developers use these customized culture devices for growing chips, which is not always compatible with larger scale up for drug discovery and drug development. 
I mean, in contrast, like you mentioned, you develop these organoplate platforms in 384 wells that are enabling high-throughput screening on organ chips, which is, of course, a major requirement for drug development companies. So talk a little bit more about the scalability side of things and how has your platform been able to achieve this scalability where maybe other platforms haven't? And do you think you can get even more scalable from here? Yeah, it's been it's really been one of our core assets from the start. I must say, at the moment, um, the platform works. Right, the platform is there. We are continuously improving the uh, applications. We we are con continuously broadening up uh, the the diseases and the tissues that we are culturing. And if that requires a modification to the microfluidics of things, we can and we do. Um, but most often, actually, when we talk to partners that we are research, doing research with, one of the first things that often happens is, can we add this? Can we add that? Can we make it more complex? Can we make it more intricate? And then when you start thinking about it and drill down a little bit, what we often find is that if you really get down to the functional units, if you really get down to uh, what is needed for a disease, we can do a lot with the platform as it currently stands. And um, and that has been effectively a mantra for our engineers, not for our biologists, but for our engineers from the get-go. It was saying, if we have to give up on scalability to add this functionality, we're not going to edit on edit until we find a more elegant and a more scalable solution for it. Um, we've not found a solution yet to add uh, stretch, to add push-pull, active uh, mechanical stimulation other than through flow yet. But for everything else, we've found effectively found solutions that do not sacrifice scalability. For flow, we use gravity. Instead of having a lot of tubes, having pumps that are prone to having bubbles that re require active running of every individual uh, uh, chip, we said, no, we're not going to do that we are going to use gravity. Does that mean you have to do a little bit of a compromise? Yes. Uh, it means that you cannot have uh, infinitely high uh, shear. But for most uh, applications that we have, we see that the way we approach it now, having gravity-driven flow, is perfectly capable of generating the phenotypes that we want, that we need. It's perfectly uh, capable of getting uh, uh, endothelial cells to align, uh, to stimulate the, formula the, the formation of actual perfusible microvasculature. Um, the fact that we wanted to have multiple different uh, tissues uh, being used in conjunction, well, th th there were ideas there which allow you to add different tissues uh, subsequently doing everything very complex. And the first ideas are always typically really, really complex and would sacrifice scalability. But we've always said, no, we need, we need to not just find a solution, but we need to find an elegant solution that maintains scalability. Because to be honest, it's nice for screens. It's a requirement for screens. But I find that it's already a requirement for uh, doing quick iterations, being able to, to get new understandings for diseases quickly. You just think in a different way about progressing your science if you need to think within 5 or 10, uh, NS5 or 10. You want to have a decent number of replicants for every data point. You want to be able to do concentration curves 
a long time before you get to the point to be able to do screens. It's very valuable and it just speeds up research immensely if you can uh, if, if you can scale up. So it's been something that we've just been diehard unwilling to sacrifice. And um, and I think it's worked out pretty well for us because that it, it means that most of the people who work at, uh, at our company are biologists. They are not thinking in engineering. They're not thinking about how to how to change chips or how to optimize them. They are working on making the next uh, the next best tissue. They're thinking about okay, we have unanswered questions from a biological point of stem uh, point of view. How are we going to uh, how are we going to find those answers? How are we going to make a model system that is actually uh, recapitulating those biological functional aspects of a nor of a healthy tissue or that show the right response to disease triggers and um and then it just helps that you have something that is a tighter plate that you can use all the infrastructure that any lab has and uh, and i always feel that that we've done our job well if somebody's thinking about the science and not just about and and absolutely not about the engineering that went into that when's the last time you thought about the engineering that went into your computer or your car or whatever maybe as a cool gimmick because because you like that type of uh, thing but in the end it's important that it gets you where you need to go or that it just works and, you, and to be honest it takes pretty pictures and gives you access to your social media but <laughs> yeah i think it's uh yeah it's being really at the forefront in every design choice we've made yeah yeah it's just got to work right and uh, i think yeah. you're alluding to this uh kind of different way of thinking between biologists engineers and i think that's really key to not just our era of science, but also how we translate some of these, you know, biological innovations to become practical engineered solutions, right? I, I can remember uh, talking to a friend who's trying to move cells into trials, and, and they were describing a bit of a disconnect between the engineering and cell biologist components of the larger team. I, I'm paraphrasing uh, them a little bit, but they, they said some like, uh, these engineers keep coming back to us with numbers of viable cells and then et cetera, et cetera. And the point being there is that the the number of viable cells was not really as important to, to that person, to my friend, as the biological efficacy and metafunction of those cells, right? For them to be working as a therapeutic, they just need to work. And that's an engineering approach, but also the biology. It's not about just viability, right? It's about function. So um, you were talking about how critical it is to to set up and, and engineer these systems so that you don't sacrifice that reproducibility and scalability. Uh, but, you know, biologists come in and they want to add and they want to ask all their questions. Um, but fundamentally, this was a biological innovation. When you started this, when you came out with this paper a decade ago and, you, you know, started the company, it was based on this biological innovation uh, but then you'd had to translate that to kind of engineering perfection so that it could be used and it would just work, as we were saying. What were some of the challenges to expanding that lab on a chip or generally expanding lab on a chip class technologies to commercial scale, either at the beginning or, or continuing challenges with how you expand the versatility and applications that these uh, chips are capable of? And I think what we what we found is that there is a once you want to commercialize something, uh, it's no longer good enough 
for stuff to work once, right? Uh, writing a paper is one thing, uh, getting other people in your own lab to be able to reproduce the same thing is a, is, a, is a different thing altogether already. And trying to make something work for everybody, everybody who can get their hands on it is, uh, is even more difficult still. And I think that really comes into, uh, it all comes down to does something work once, does something work 90% of the time, or does it work 99.9% .9 of the time? And it's always that continuous striving for that, for that 99.9% .9 performance that uh yeah that I think makes the that's the big challenge moving from a one-off cool showcase of a technology and something that really just works. And again, where you get to that position where people don't even think about it anymore, right? They 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 are focusing on on their biological question. And when's the last time somebody thought about, okay, I hope my ELISA works or what what engineering went into that, right? No, that's just a it's a commodity technology that you trust. And I think that's the the that that's the ultimate thing we strive for from a from a microfluidic technology point of view. It's it's just a commodity that works. Everybody should be able to use it. It's not an expert thing. The expertise is there in the biology. And I think that's also what we've seen. It's easy to make a new product. It takes quite some time to validate it with all of the biology that you could imagine throwing at, uh, at your new version of the, uh, of the organ on a chip platform. But a lot of the ongoing research and the ongoing developments are all focused on biology. Two thirds of the people working at the metals are biologists. They are working with pharmaceutical companies. They are working for pharmaceutical companies. We we sell these plates, but actually we do more than that. We we partner up and do research with um, with pharmaceutical companies, and um, and that's where really all of the knowledge uh, uh, resides. It's it's easy to come up with a system that allows you to put five cell types together. Getting them to be happy to act and to reproduce really reliably form a fully functional liver is much more of a biology challenge than it is an engineering challenge. And uh, and one way that we've tried to make that a little bit easier is, of course, first to to push for a uh, to push for a reliable platform that gives you enough replicates uh, that, that that you can actually do science uh, reliably. But we've also been trying to make the fundamental building blocks of biology, make them a, a little bit easier to get your hands on. So wherever we, we run into something that you need to do over and over again, we try and we try to industrialize it. If you know that somebody's always putting uh, collagen in a plate and then adding Keikos on top, you know what? Why don't we just bank these Keikos, have these Keikos at the ready for people to grab them? We can even make these plates with the biology already in there so that the thinking of the biologist starts when the real difficult uh, uh, things come along. And that becomes especially relevant when you want to go for highly complex uh, co-culture models where we're saying, okay, let's combine a microvascular bed with a, or, or let's, let, let, let's combine an endothelial tube with uh, maybe uh, some fibroblast next to it. We, we take uh, a, um, intestinal adult stem cell derived organoid. We grow that as a tube next to it. And then maybe add some inflammatory or some uh, some immune cells to the mix as well. That's difficult enough to get to work if you don't have to have every scientist think about okay, where am I going to get my 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 organoids? Uh, are my organoids happy to start with? Where am I going to get my fibroblasts? So 
in-house, we've really set up this uh, uh, we've set up this infrastructure for biobanking, for having these type of cells with very standardized protocols available that somebody who wants to do a five-way co-culture can typically pick three or four, or maybe even five of the, the building blocks that go into that five-way co-culture, can just grab it off the shelf, have well-validated, well-established protocols to throw them together. And that's when the real difficult uh, uh, stuff starts, right? So that's where we, uh, why, why we want to standardize everything that comes before so that our, our smart colleagues can use that brain power on the stuff that we haven't already solved 10 times before. And to some extent, we've also started pushing that to other labs by making some of the most standard tissues available. You can just buy them live. We ship them to you so that your thinking starts where it should start, not by trying to do what we have already done a million times, but by adding your own compounds, by uh, uh, by starting to to do your novel tests and, and, and to really push the boundaries of science onwards instead of doing that all of that hard labor that gets you to the status quo. Yeah, I think one of the words that you mentioned in your answer there was reproducibility. That's, I think, in my mind, the the biggest thing for taking a technology from an academic technology to a commercially viable technology is how many times can you reproduce the results and how many times can you have that technology be reproducible? Because, you know, the reproducibility is an issue in academic science. We know that. But when you're moving it on, you have to directly address that problem. And organ chip to technology it it has a lot of potential. I mean, the last 10 years have been astounding in terms of the the number of groups that are starting to adopt and adapt organ on chip technologies. But like any emerging technology, there are skeptics out there about the utility and also the the broad applicability of these organ chip systems. I mean, I think one thing that a lot of skeptics with any technology are are looking for are the quote killer apps associated with that technology or in other words, like case situations that have demonstrated that organ chips are actually superior to 2D cell culture for drug discovery or drug development. So if you were actually chatting with somebody who was a skeptic of the organ chip technology, what would what would you say has been that number one case scenario that has demonstrated the true power of the organ chip technology? So I think that the, the most... Striking examples that I like are the places where it's bloody obvious, right? If you are looking at uh, immune cell migration, where you're looking, or if you're looking at metastasis of tumors, where you are really studying the complex interaction between multiple compartments and tissues that are simply not there in any of the other models, you don't even need to go into the nitty gritty of saying, look, our, our productivity was uh, so many percent points higher than the conventional. Uh, it's the easiest when you just show something that is not at all observed elsewhere. I mean, for 3D cell culture, I think the original, one of the hallmarks there was the whole, the, the, breast, can the breast cancer paper where, we, where they were showing, look, responses to, uh, uh, to treatments are completely reversed in 2D versus 3D, and you actually see that the 3D matches up with the clinical practice and the 2D doesn't. Well, that's striking, right? If we are trying to study and improve the um, targeting of immune cells towards tumor cells, we just see that if we have the complete 
package. We've got tumor cells, we've got fibroblast, we've got an, a blood vessel. We perfuse the immune cells through the blood vessel. If we leave out any of these three components, we just don't see uh, uh, in vivo-like treatment responses. Only if we have all four of them together, we see the interaction going, we see that the immune, that the uh, tumor cells give off signals to the stromal cells, that they uh, activate the endothelial cells, and that's what starts the entire inflammatory uh, response. And, and that's the real pathway that you want to be interacting with when you're developing your next drug. I think there you just see that if any of the parts are missing, it doesn't work. Those are the type of models that I like. On the other hand, there's also nice anecdotes, right? We we know that there are that we've done screens where we don't have hands-on uh, access to the full uh, results of the data. They were never disclosed to us because everything's done double-blinded. Uh, but we know anecdotally that yes, the compounds that came out of them were novel, were new, and were pushed on uh, towards the clinic. Stuff we can only drag about, brag about uh, anecdotally. We've also had the opposite, which is maybe not so positive, but it is always fun to think about that. We had uh, screens that we did with with, pharma, with pharma customers where we did not see any results. We did not see any response of the compounds of interest, and they said, "Well, your model must must not work so well because we do see uh, results in our animal models." A couple of years later, they phoned us and they said, "We should have listened to you because in in humans it actually doesn't work." Yeah, those are all proprietary results, right? You will never get get it on. Uh, you will never get it in writing. You will never be able to share it externally. But those are the moments in time that you think, okay, the, uh, there, uh, there, these models are working, and this is really getting close to impacting what drugs make their way to patients. And uh, and I think, well, drug discovery takes a long time. We typically are working relatively early on in the process, so. Time will tell if uh, if in, if a few years from now we'll have a lot of drugs that reach patients that would never have been there without our technology, but but that is what we're aiming for, right? Uh, sometimes we we state, uh, okay, well, what's your your audacious goal for uh, your, your dot on the horizon? Well, we'd like to be in a place where half or or more than half of the drugs that that of novel drugs that enter the market uh, have been enabled by our technology in one way or another. And I think that that's where we want to be, right? Yeah, I mean, you're getting there. It seems like you've already pretty much cornered the market on these uh, organo-ready platform in terms of uh, biology on a chip, very widely extent and widely used. Um, and, and this platform, the organo-ready uh, Mimetas, offers a diversity of formats, toxicology, permeability studies. Um, so there's like primary adult cells, human brain microvascular endothelium for modeling the BBB, the blood-brain barrier, uh, HUVEC, uh, human umbilical vein endothelial cells for modeling vascular beds, even kidney and colon progenitors uh, that form these organoid tubules. But uh, as you were kind of describing there, the future seems to be uh, added complexity, right? Uh, you're adding more and more cell types. You said they're upwards of five in some cases. And for me, it's just another dimension of complexity or multiple dimensions of complexity um, that may, uh, you know, increase the the applications and, and the value of that data, as you just alluded to, when you're going in like a, a 2D cell system or animal models, uh, it doesn't really approximate the real biology of the, of the system 
in vivo and a complex system. And I feel like, you know, we move from 2D to 3D. That's like literally adding a dimension, but also in terms of like developmental capacity, let's say you were to add pluripotent stem cells, you have a whole spectrum of maturity that comes in there. When you add every other cell type, I feel like it's an exponential increase in the connectivity and complexity of the interrelationship of those two cells. And then a third cell type and fourth and fifth, as you say. So as you uh, approach this really, you know, magnificent and majestic complexity, uh, there is potentially a sacrifice of the reproducibility and the scalability. Um, so with that in mind, what is the the, the R&D direction? How do you accommodate that complexity in a way that keeps you true to that mission, um, you know, priority number one, which is making something that just works? Well, luckily, biology is helping us out there. I think actually the most difficult one to do is maybe two or three cell types together. You are, uh, you're in a situation where your tissue is still very, very artificial. Uh, you you clearly lack some of the uh, signaling and interaction between cell types that 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 makes homeostasis happening happen. Um, but you have to find this sort of cure-all medium that all your cells are happy in, or maybe well, we we can have we can perfuse separate parts of the tissue with separate media, generate some gradients. Maybe we can get it to work, but it's still very much an engineer trying to do biology, right? You're still trying to put the cells where they should be and you're trying to tell them how to behave. Um, what we found is that, for example, a liver model that we've been working on, uh, that, that, that I've, every other week I get a new, uh, I, I, I see some new images, some new data coming out of there that just blows my mind. And what we what we saw there is that actually once you cross a certain threshold of completeness of the tissue, things start to self-balance again. You, it, it was way harder to find a situation in which two or three cell types play nice with each other than it was when we just basically put all the relevant components together. When we take uh, uh, liver organoids, add stromal cells, add endothelium uh, in there, uh, add some cholangiocytes uh, directed differentiated cells and some hepatic directed uh, differentiated cells, put them all together, we actually started seeing, okay, these cells start to start to apparently help each other out. They start to form, they start to self-organize really into, into pictures that just look one-on-one -on -one like uh, like liver signs. So you start to see the, the zonation happening. If you add the right type of perfusion through these liver tissues, you really see all of that um, self-correct. You see them organized like they are in the body and it, it makes sense, right? When, when you have all the parts there, it, it also works in the body. Uh, give them the right uh, cues, give them the right environments. And I think this is of course, one of the ways in which organize often offer so much more uh, than single cell types because they intrinsically have that ability to provide some of the cell diversity that you need. It's not always enough. So sometimes you have to add some more cell types yourself. But yeah, we've seen there that single cells are easy. A few cell types are difficult. Once you breach that critical mass to get close to the real in vivo situation, sometimes life gets easier. And uh, maybe we just hit a couple of lucky breaks there, but but 
I've seen it happen now with a with a few uh, tissue types, and 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 I think it makes sense. Give the biology the chance to self-organize, self-direct, and then you don't have to sacrifice reproducibility, and um, and 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 it just it will give you the uh, it, it will give your tissues the capacity to also capture a diverse range of disease mechanisms and uh, and, and and just be more more predictive uh, in general. Not. And of course, on that, uh, on, on top of that, I'm still looking forward to that time when I start my, uh, when I start a, a talk at a conference uh, with the showcasing the base biology of the liver, and then at some point showing, and this is how it looks like in our chip, and then oh wait, 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 I reversed the two tissues. Sorry for swapping the pictures for you, and and getting away with that joke. And I think we're not so far away from that. And uh, and what we just often see is if 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 it looks like a duck and it uh, acts like a duck, it typically also uh, predicts pretty well how the duck would be walking. So, it is uh, it's the way we we see these tissues come together quite naturally by by recapitulating the in vivo situation and leaving out as little as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to to look forward to with the technology, and so let's take a look into the future, right? I mean, here in the U.S., we've actually had some regulatory agencies that are taking notice of the potential of organ on chip technology actually to accelerate and transform drug discovery. I mean, for example, the the US FDA, Food and Drug Administration, actually had their FDA Modernization Act 2.0, which specifically mentions that advanced technologies, including organ chips and microphysiological systems, can be used to actually investigate the safety and efficacy of drugs in in potentially in place of animal models. And I mean, I think this is a nice way to modernize the the antique uh, uh, antiqueness of the FDA, which has been criticized for a while now. But you know, it certainly is doing its its part in making sure the drugs that are being developed are safe and effective. Um, but I think being able to use some of these organ chip technologies is going to be a a great uh, advancement for for preclinical for the preclinical side of things. But when it comes to actually fully replacing animal testing. Do you think we we should? I mean, certainly you have your bias as somebody who works on an organ chip technology and works for this particular company. But do you think ultimately we should entirely replace preclinical animal, animal testing? I think that for the the even the long term foreseeable future, there will be a spot. There will be a place for animal models, um, and I think that place is a sort of a, a catch all safety net for things that we just didn't think of at all in full-on interaction between different tissues. It's it's very difficult to make a model that completely replicates every single interaction between distant parts of a living organism uh, completely. Think about things that that require full gest gestation of animals, teratogenicity. That's going to be hard to to capture in a tissue. Um, at the same time, we also know that a lot of these models are just intrinsically a very, very poor predictor. We we have been doing these assays for ages, and they 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 don't just don't work very well. So getting rid of them for a lot of toxicity, uh, for a lot of admitox, for a lot of uh, efficacy assays, where we just have a better alternative, I think it makes sense. I think we will probably still want to use a few animal models indeed to to have this whole organism uh, uh, 
backup safety net. Um, but I think counting on hepatotoxicity to be well recapitulated in 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 several in, in in mice, it's it's just a bad idea. If you think you're gonna find proper uh, proxies of efficacy and of safety for uh, for metabolic uh, syndrome or for diabetes or for those types of assays, yeah, it's just never gonna work because the chemistry and the biology in rodents is so vastly different from humans that it's just not gonna be good enough. And then, yeah, th those are areas where I say, once you showcase with a wide enough body of data that the in vitro models are simply superior to animal models, then if you then still stick to animal models, you're just doing it out of, uh, out of, for legacy reasons and inertia, and that should be avoided. Yeah. I like to think of professor Linda Nicholson, who was my first year graduate school, protein structure and chemistry. She said that the, the holy grail in protein structure and function that will probably never be found is to be able to predict the 3D structure of a protein based on just the primary sequence, right? And everyone just assumed, oh yeah, never going to happen. Here we go. A few years ago, AlphaGo did it. So I think the idea that I'm trying to trying to convey there is that you you do whatever works best. And like ultimately, if these animal models aren't approximating the human biology and aren't delivering what they're set out to deliver, then you go to what works. And, and I think, you know, nowadays it may be the in vitro modeling with these uh, organ on chip and future, maybe AI in silico, who knows, who cares really, whatever gets you to the answer. Um, and I think the one thing we can count on is that the technology is going to move forward and we're going to find better and, and, and more effective methods that honestly, we, we can't really imagine right now because uh, it's beyond our horizon. So I think talking to you has given me a lot of insight and, and has really underscored the way that we're moving forward to biology outside of the body uh, on these organ on chips. And I really appreciate it, Boss, you giving us this perspective, not only your unique biological experience, but also the 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 experience you have in industry and in, in taking that biological idea and making it a, a tool and a system that just works and everybody can have access to. So thank you so much. Before we let you go, though, we have a couple of peripheral questions for you. I mean, I can't imagine where the world would be if this were the case, but if you were not a research scientist, uh, what would you be doing with your life, boss? <laughs> yeah, so I... Uh... It was actually a pretty uh, a pretty narrow margin. I, I could have become a pharmacist at some point because I just wanted. Originally, I wanted to uh, I wanted to be a doctor, and I think in hindsight, if I'd have to choose another uh, profession, that that would probably be the one I would have hoped to end up with. But uh, in the Dutch educational system, the way the way it works is you 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 make some choices pretty early on in what the. Equiv equates to what what you what, what you minor and major in, but already in high school, and uh, and that one didn't it didn't fit with becoming a medical doctor. Uh, so then the so the closest thing I was uh, I was gonna go for was well okay you know what let's then just become a pharmacist, only to after only to after a while figure out well you know what and luckily before I even started the, those studies to find out well. You're basically a shopkeeper then, right? You need to know what you're selling, but but a big part of what you're doing is about how to make money selling drugs. And that was not really what I was uh, was aiming for. So 
I was pretty lucky to find out that in that in Leiden, in the Netherlands, where we're where we're located, there was a, a, a pretty cool study. It's really focused on drug development. During that time, focused uh, uh, started working also towards uh, using the technology uh, to improve analytical technologies, doing lab on a chip, and that that all uh, pushed us here. So. The pharmacy was sort of the negative, the pharmacist, pure basic pharmacist is the one I'm ha I happily avoided. Doctor was the one that I uh, that I also always had in uh, in mind, and maybe the the tinkering professor in me would all. I've always uh, thought that the the person who designs these surgical instruments, those type of things, that 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 must be a lovely job to have as well, right? Just. Just finish design the, the perfect tool for a very specialistic uh, uh, surgery or something like that. That 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 must be amazing as well to be able to do. <laughs> well, I thought I think you found a, a piece of all that. You know, you're designing the perfect tool, but it's a pharmacological tool, and you're doing that by creating these screening systems. So I think you found the medium, boss, and you thread the needle. And thank God for us all. Finally, uh, what do you think is the biggest misconception about science that you would love to resolve? Here I'm. Uh, I would really, I, I would really say, if you talk to somebody who's not in academia and who's not in in science or uh, itself, there's this per this perception that great science is done. If you want to have the freedom to collaborate and the freedom to to really pursue your goal, your scientific ambitions, that. Uh, what you should do is go uh, join a university, and that every commercial aspect of that is the devil. Uh, I think if I look around and see everybody who's working in, pharmaceut in pharmaceutical sciences, 99% of those people are, are driven by a passion to want to help, to help society, to bring drugs to people. And in my uh, experience, the best way to have that happen, the best way to collaborate, the best way to have people work together to achieve otherwise completely unfair. Un unreasonable goals is to have a commercial plan to go into a company and uh, and I can only I cannot imagine having as great a team as we have now at in our company at Mimetos having all of these young ambitious and hugely creative scientists working there together towards this single goal of bringing better and newer drugs to uh, to patients as fast as we can I, I could not imagine that happening uh, in without that context of a company, without that team where that, that drives you forward together. So um, I would say, I think the best science is 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 done uh, by collaboration, and collaboration is usually uh, uh, really helped out by having a company, a biotech, a startup in whatever way, but at least having one common goal with quite some people where you can work together. So um, calling uh, calling the commercial part of science the dark side, I think it's 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 a huge injustice. <laughs> well, I think Arun and I would agree with that, and I think a lot of scientists are coming around on that, boss. You know, it's no longer the era of big industry, you know, with this soulless pursuit of profit, but it's just a, a ton of these small bespoke ventures that are all passionately driven by scientists like yourself to bring answers to disease uh, and and solve some of biology's most complex questions. And thank God for all of you guys and really, really appreciate uh, your work and sharing it with us. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. There, you can give us feedback or some suggest some guests. We'd love to hear from you. Until the next episode, thank you guys so much for listening.